The reading this morning is taken from the book of Joel, chapter 2, and that can be found in the Church Bibles on page 914, that's 914. Joel, chapter 2, and beginning to read at verse 23. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, on this special day when we remember and celebrate that you have poured out your Holy Spirit upon all flesh, Father, we want our lives to be open to you now. We want to receive from your word. We want to be changed by your word. And we want to go out to share your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Ursula said, uh, I, yeah, I thought uh, Bishop Curry's sermon was amazing. I mean, wow. <laughs> He had a, he had an audience, we asked, well, the BBC were estimating about 1.8 billion people. 
I mean, the thought of preaching in front of the royal family would make my knees shake and, you know, all sorts of things. But, the, you know, then thinking, he probably wasn't thinking about that, was he? I should imagine not thinking about the, the worldwide audience. But uh, no, he, I, thought, I thought he preached a really good sermon. I was going, preach it, brothers, as he was going. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think it's great for us to join together as two congregations. I know we, I know we do things together, obviously, but it's great to, to worship uh, on a Sunday morning together from time to time. So that, that's wonderful. And can I just say, as, as, as Margaret read that passage so, so well just now, I really had a sense, uh, as, as I've prepared and as I heard it read just now, that this passage really is for, for us, for now. And uh, I really just felt that uh, uh, confirmed in me as, as Margaret read that. But let me tell you a, a tale of faded glory to start off with. If people would have been asked in 1968, which nation would dominate the world in watchmaking during the 1990s and into our present 21st century, the answer would have been uniform, Switzerland. Why? Because Switzerland, Switzerland had dominated the world of watchmaking for 60 years before the 1960s. The Swiss had made the best watches in the world and were committed to refining these watches that they were making, making them better because, you know, they were expert watchmakers. It was the Swiss who, met, who came forward with the, the minute hand and the second hand. And by 1968, 65% of all watches made in the world were made there. They made 90% of worldwide profits of watchmaking in Switzerland. However, by 1980, they had laid off thousands of watchmakers, uh, workers of watch uh, in, in the watchmaking trade. And they, by 1980, controlled only 10% of the world's trade in watchmaking. And their profit had dropped from 65% to about 20% in 1980. Why? Why? Well, the reason is that the Swiss had refused to consider a new development. They'd refused to consider the quartz movement. Ironically, quartz was invented by a Swiss person. But it was too much of a a paradigm shift. It was too much of a huge shift in their thinking to, to go from the way they'd always done it to, to this new way, and they couldn't quite make that shift and embrace it. However, Seiko, on the other hand, accepted it, and along with a, a few other companies, became the leader in the watch industry. And that lesson of the Swiss watchmaking industry is profound. Because their past was so secure, so profitable, so dominant, but it was destroyed by an, unwilling, an unwillingness to embrace the future, to think about the future. That past importance had blinded them to the implications of a changing world and a, and a, and a failure to admit that that past accomplishment was no guarantee of future, future success. And the same was true of ancient Israel. Joel, the prophet Joel, who we're looking at today, he lived about 400 years before Jesus. 
And during Joel's time, the, the nation of Israel was going through a time of real darkness, really difficult time. And yet, of course, once upon a time, Israel had been the greatest power in that part of the world. It was, it was a great economic power, it was a great military power in the Middle East. Of course, uh, particularly during the reign of, of King uh, David and King Solomon. Uh, their wealth grew, their, their building projects grew, the temples were amazing, uh, they, their borders were safe, but it all changed so quickly. When Solomon died, the nation was divided into two. Uh, there's a power struggle, and the nation was just is divided into two. And the new divided kingdoms were never as strong as when David was king. And so both of those kingdoms went through a steady decline. Moral, religious, political decline. Until the, the north and then the south was conquered. Pagan armies came in. Pagan powers came in, demolished their great cities, demolished the great temple, uh, demolished the palaces, and almost a generation later, those who survived were taken into captivity. And then about a hundred years after that, 400 years before Christ, Joel was born. And in spite of being home, in spite of rebuilding the temple, as we thought about when we were thinking about Nehemiah, Israel was no longer the power it used to be. It was a, a province of a foreign power. Uh, the temple was no bigger, the people had no more freedom, and the night of Israel's long oppression was still dark. Pagan government officials knew nothing of God's law. Uh, they were allowed a king, but they were pa- uh, puppet kings. So Israel was badly in need of restoration. And Joel comes to bring them the news of this restoration, this new day, with his prophecy in verse 25 of our reading. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Now we know, of course, that today is Pentecost Sunday. And we celebrate around our world that the church is celebrating the coming of the Spirit in power upon all flesh. But it's good, I think, just to to take some time as, as to why the Spirit was poured out on all flesh on the first day of Pentecost and why he is still being poured out upon us today. And I think this passage in Joel teaches us three big principles about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the first big principle about the coming of the Holy Spirit is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is preceded by repentance. It's preceded by repentance. Repentance comes first. As I said, Israel was in need of repentance in a big way. They had a, a strayed from God. They'd gone away from his law. They'd gone away from his decrees. Uh, they'd gone away from his statutes. And they had gone way, way out of his way of doing things. And so he'd sent judgment upon them. Army upon army had come down upon them. Taken them into captivity. Taken them into exile far from their homelands. 
by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Uh, most people know that's a Boney M song, don't they? <laughs> it's actually from the Psalms. But it was a, a lament, you know, it's a song of lament, a song of sorrow. The people have been cut off from their own land, cut off from their inheritance, cut off, it felt like, protection of their own God. And so God says, repent, repent, come back to me in repentance. Look at the, uh, look back in Joel, in Joel's book, book chapter 2, verse 12. And we see Joel saying that. We see the Lord saying that. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning. In other words, don't just make a show of it. Don't just sort of outwardly sort of say sorry and move on. No, make it real. Make it in your heart. Decide in your soul that you want to turn back to God. Now, I think quite often in our Christian walk with Jesus, we confuse confession with repentance. Every Sunday we come into church, we come into a service. Uh, Other times we say a prayer of confession. And a confession is at the same time an admission before God that we have failed to live up to his standard of holiness. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer and admission of that failure to be holy. But that's not the same as repentance. True repentance is, is turning around and going the other way. That's what these first Christians did. I say this when I talk to baptism families. Repentance is, is going one way and turning around and going the other direction. Jesus talked about this a few times, didn't he? This is what he says to the Pharisees. He's stinging words to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 3 verse 8. He says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Imagine him preaching that in front of the royal family. But that is one of the keys to our understanding of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Before God brings new life, the old life has to be burned away. We've got to say enough is enough. And the Spirit falls. It's just a principle. It's a kingdom principle. The Spirit falls when people have turned away from sin and have set their face on righteousness. When God begins to move amongst people, amongst a people, there is a cry for holiness that is issued and must be answered. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, brings them to a place of sorrow. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He, he's gracious. The Holy Spirit is gracious. He brings people to a place of refreshing. A place of peace. A place of hope. 
doesn't want people to stay in condemnation. He wants them to come to a place of hope and refreshing. The great Billy Graham died, didn't he, recently? And uh, I had the amazing privilege of, of hearing him in person in Norwich in the 1980s. I was only a youngster. Uh, but he was, he was doing one of his rallies in, in the stadium at uh, the football grounds. And he said that true conversion comes out of true repentance. Which is true. We've got to know deep in our heart that we, are, that we need God in our lives before he is given permission to move in our lives. And that action of repentance comes out of our need for hope. Without hope, we are doomed and destined for nothingness. We're lost. Without hope, we're lost. And our hope is Jesus. He is our hope. There is no other hope. He is the only hope for the world. Now, it's not bad, you know, sorrow, being sorrowful isn't bad. Of course it's not. But sorrow should lead to repentance. And, and in repentance, we have hope of forgiveness of our sins. You know, sometimes you might sort of, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that, or I shouldn't have said that. And, and sometimes we're even caught, you know, <laughs> in doing something that we shouldn't have done. And yes, sorrow comes into it, but it's, it's not just that. It's admitting before God, yes, we've messed up. We've got things wrong. We've broken the heart of God. But we want him to change us. There's a real inward desire to change and be transformed by him. So Israel had to admit their wrong. They had to admit their sin before God could do anything else. It's true of you, you and I. So the first principle is repentance is required before the Spirit can fall and new life can come. The second principle is about restoration. We learn here about restoration. This is what the Lord promises to his people in verse 26 of our Bible reading. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. When I when I'm able, I'm not an early riser generally. I'm not I'm not an early riser. But when I am able, when I feel you know that I want to get up early enough, and I I do love to see the sunrise. I love seeing the sunrise. Easter Day, other times as well. Watching the sunrise is amazing. And when we were living in Australia, Debbie and I had the amazing privilege of going to Ayers Rock right in the center of that continent. And we made sure we saw the sunrise because that's the place in the whole world to see the sunrise. Because what happens is the sun, the sun comes up, the, the rock changes color. It's the most tremendous sight, really, a breathtaking sight, as the, the rock, the sun, somehow changes the color of the rock as it rises. But sunrises, wherever you are, there's significance. Whether you're at Ayers Rock or on Lith Hill or wherever it is, you know, the, the sun rising is significant because what it's, it's saying is, is that the, the, the long night has gone and there is hope. The light is coming. The sun rising is in itself a daily showing of hope, of new life coming after the long nights. 
And sometimes, during those dark parts of our lives, when it all seems to be going wrong, when all hope seems to have gone, there's a sunrise. Suddenly, in the darkness of our situation, there's a glimmer of light. There's a, a, some, some light shows somewhere in the distant sky. And then in an instant, that darkness, even with a little tiny glimmer of light, the darkness has to go because the light has come. That's what Israel needed. That's what we need as, as well. And in the midst of darkness, Joel sees a light coming from heaven. It's a ray of hope for Israel. A ray of light comes in that dark time. And he preaches hope, just as the bishop did yesterday. He preached hope. Like Job, they're going to get their material blessings back. They're going to be restored. No longer, and God's not going to allow the locusts to eat the land and to eat the, the, the fruit. No. They would have plenty. But it even goes beyond that. Because the, the, the message of Joel, the message of, uh, of what he's saying is even more than that. He's talking about spiritual blessings. He's talking about the spirit being poured out upon human hearts. As we'll see in a moment. But essentially, it's a beautiful verse. He's talking about the restoration of creation. And we, we, we pray for that every Sunday. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for the restoration of the whole of creation. When we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that God will restore the earth to the way it's meant to be. To its original glory before sin and decay. Amen. And according to Joel, this picture affects the whole of creation. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom grows and it affects everything around it. It's a restoration to the way of the things in, in, in the beginning, in the first garden. There was food enough for everyone. It was God's goodness poured out. In that garden. And yet because of sin, because of Adam and, and the sin that he, and Eve's sin that they fell into, there was a struggle. They were forced out of the garden. And they were sent away. And yet Joel is saying it will be restored. God is gracious. He will restore creation to its original goodness, its original beauty, its original completeness. Everyone will have plenty to eat. Verse 27 says, My people shall never again be put to shame. Amazing verse. My people will never again be put to shame. Adam and Eve left the garden in shame. And yet they weren't, when they were with God in the Garden of Eden, they were not in shame. They were naked and yet they weren't ashamed of it. They had no reason to hide from God because they weren't ashamed. And then sin came in. And what Joel is saying is that God is going to wipe that slate clean. He's going to start again. And that's why the Spirit coming is so refreshing, so enabling, so life-giving. Because the Spirit refreshes people who need to start again with him. 
washes away our guilt, washes away our sin, washes away our shame. It's a starting again with God. No strings attached. No shame attached. Where I did my curacy, I was in a church in Hinckley, in Leicester Diocese. And uh, our strap line as a church was, we want to be a community of hope and restoration. That's what we, we talked about this all over the place. You know, we talked about it in sermons and, you know, home groups, etc. And, and it was amazing that, you know, we weren't just saying it. Actually, God blessed us with it. He blessed us with encounters with people who had, you know, really messed up. You know, they'd gone their own way and they'd got, you know, gone all sorts of horrible directions in their lives. And yet when they encountered Jesus, their lives were refreshed and renewed and inspired to be his people. And my prayer is that we will be more and more like that at Christ Church. That we will have more and more, I know we do, and I, I pray that we will have more and more of those encounters of, with people who are being set free by Jesus. Who have the privilege of, of seeing, we have the privilege of seeing Jesus working in their lives. Being restored by him, being set free by him. Also, Joel says in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? In intimate relation. But sin got in the way. Sin broke that communion. But now Joel says that it's going to be restored. It's going to be restored. It's going to be brought in again. God will walk with his people in the midst of them. That intimacy will be restored and is restored. So it's a promise that went far, far, far beyond that which they could have ever hoped for, dreamed about, anticipated. So we need to repent. That's the first principle. Uh, we, we need to realize that restoration comes when sin is broken by Jesus. But lastly, there's a manifesta- manifestation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And afterwards, says Joel, in verse 28, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so with the coming of the Holy Spirit, there's an unstoppable flow of the Holy Spirit's power. It's like a river. It's like a waterfall. You can't. You can try and stop it. You can try and put bricks in the way, or blocks in the way, or stones in the way. But it, you can't stop the Holy Spirit flowing. And yet, in the Old Testament, it, it's interesting that the that the Spirit is given just to particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. We'll just look briefly at, at one example with uh, uh, together. So, if you could find Numbers, the Book of Numbers in the Bible. If you've got a Bible there, try and find the book of Numbers. It's, it's towards the beginning of the Old Testament. And Numbers chapter 11. All right, when someone's got a page number from the church Bible, please just call it out because I've got my own version up here. One, one four seven. One, page 147 in the church Bibles. Thank you. So Numbers chapter 11, and just looking at verse 24, and a few verses on from verse 24. 
148. Thanks, Ingrid. So Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. It says, So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought them, he brought together 70 of their elders and made them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Interesting, isn't it? Now what's going on is Moses is in need of helpers. He needs some church wardens. He needs a church council. He needs some lay assistants. He needs a couple of curates. You know, he needs some help. He's, he's, a, he's got a big job. He's got a big church. Big, big community of people. What does he do? Well, the Spirit comes and rests on them and these helpers prophesy, but only briefly. And then the Spirit rests on Eldad and Medad, who, interesting, haven't gone, they haven't gone to where they should have gone, and yet the Spirit rests on them and stays on them. Says a thing or two about rebellious people, doesn't it? Maybe. But Moses, you see, expresses something that later comes true. The, the, he says that he he says, "I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them." So, in a, he, in a sense, he's praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that prayer comes true on the day of Pentecost, because on the day of Pentecost, that's what happens: the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. On all flesh. So Paul, later on, expressed it like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the Spirit isn't poured out so we get the glory. No. No, God gets the glory. The Spirit is poured out so that the glory goes to God. The Spirit is poured out so that people are convicted. So that they know that they are in need of God and they come to him in repentance to be restored by him. Or as Joel puts it, so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't seek the Spirit for our own power, for our own good, for our, uh, our own building up or to make our church look exciting. No. God judges us if we do that. But we have privilege, the privilege of access to the power of the Holy Spirit when we use it to glorify Jesus. Power's never an end to itself. It's always used for a purpose that's greater than itself. You don't, you know, if you use a, a, a power drill or a power saw or a power something to, to build a house, you don't worship the power drill. You know, 
it's not, you know, you don't. It's there to, for a purpose. It's there to help build a house, to protect people. In the same way, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. God who inspired people to write the Bible. God whose power is poured out to change people's lives. And so when we pray for someone in the power of the Spirit, we pray that God gets the glory, that it's not the person praying. No, it's who God gets the glory when we pray for someone to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit always points to Jesus. He always points to to Jesus. Always. So what do we learn from Joel? I'm coming in to land. What do we learn from Joel? Well, Joel was first and foremost a prophet of hope. He was preaching at a time of judgment, dark times. He was preaching to a people who needed hope, and he preached hope. He preached light. He preached restoration for Israel. And yet even Joel couldn't see the full extent of that promise that was to come in the, in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because for him, Israel was, was his focus. But God's focus is the whole world. The whole of humanity, the whole of creation, the whole of the cosmos. The whole of creation is to be blessed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. But these principles remain true. It's about repentance first. It's about restoration and healing of broken lives. And it's the blessing of living freely in the flow of God's grace. And so I want to, if you're able to, to stand and to pray with me. If you're able to, don't, don't worry if you, if you don't or don't want to or, or can't. Just, but the main thing is, is just to have a, a posture of openness. If it helps to have your hands out, that's fine. If it doesn't, don't worry. Just, but just be in a posture of, open, of openness to the Spirit. And I'm going to pray an ancient prayer. It's a prayer that's been prayed down the centuries by the church. It's the prayer, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And as we stand and we have that posture of openness and and wanting to receive, the Lord says to us this morning, I long to restore you. I long to build you up. Where those locusts have come in and eaten and devoured and destroyed, the Lord says, I long to restore. I long to build up. I long to bring you to a place of restoration. And the Lord says to those of us who have something in the way, Something that's blocking that flow of the Spirit. The Lord says to us very gently, very lovingly, you need to deal with that. You need to say sorry, perhaps. You need to admit that there's something that's getting in the way. And the Lord very gently, very gently says that to people. He never says that in judgment. He always says it very gently. But maybe there's one or two here that just need to say sorry before God in the corner of their hearts. And the Lord also is saying, I, I believe, as, as, as I've, I've preached and I've prepared, the Lord is saying that he will give us plenty to eat. 
there will be plenty to eat. There will be uh, times of celebration. There will be times when we see people coming and repenting and saying sorry to God and their lives being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we long to see that happen. We, Lord, we long to see people being transformed, renewed, remade by you. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, would you bless us with your presence as we go on in this service. Lord, would you enable us, equip us, and empower us to be your people in the places you've put us. May we rejoice at the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.